0: this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Michael Prickett and Josh Quick, uh, the Emmy-winning, uh, two of the Emmy-winning uh, gentlemen behind 100 Foot Wave. Um, this one's a lot of fun because I don't often get to talk to action sports cinematographers, um, and that was a relatively uh, big part of my life for a couple of years. Not necessarily cinematography uh, in the action sports world, but uh, action sports in general. So, uh, you know, it was really cool to talk about, obviously, you know, we got the gear talking, um, (laughs) but you know, the, the challenges in, um, filming stuff out in the ocean, for instance, uh, having tons of different cameras shooting with a relatively small crew, um, and, and sort of the freedom those DPs each have those camera operators all have, um, a really interesting talk. And, uh, yeah. So, that's kind of all the primer you really need. Uh, It's a fantastic documentary, especially if you like nature or um, action sports or surfing specifically. Uh, And yeah, you know, not a a bad life to live in Hawaii and uh, shoot what you love, you know. Uh, Michael was a big uh, surf guy back in the day. We get into that. Um, Anyway, so that's your little intro. Uh, I'm going to let you get to it. Here's my conversation with Michael Prickett and Josh Quick. So the way that we uh, generally get started is just kind of by asking what got you into cinematography. Uh, for you know, w- were you young when it hit you, or did you come into it later in life?
1: Um, I became a cinema Well, actually, hmm, that's a good question. Really, really, I started as a photographer. Um, hmm. I was a still photographer taking pictures of tourists in Waikiki, getting on boats and doing all these weird stuff um, like parasailing and jet skiing. And then, um, from that, I kind of fell in love with photography and I en- ended up injuring myself back then. And the, th- the doctor told me I should swim for my rehabilitation. So I ended up putting my still camera in a, in a, in a little water housing and started swimming and started getting out in the ocean. And then, and then I realized that stills were cool, but video would be a little bit cooler. I, I started getting into back then it was actually film. I was, and I got into shooting like 16 millimeter film and, um, mm eight millimeter and then 60 millimeter film from the water. And that was kind of triggered my whole passion for um, shooting in the water and, and for film itself. And then I kind of fell in love with the different a- aspects of film and what you could do with film. And then, um, and then finally, now we're here in this digital world. So I hardly shoot film anymore.
0: Yeah. What was it about uh film that drew you to it? Cause I know a lot of DPs start as, you know, photographers, they end up falling in love with like the dark room or, whatever but um was it when you say film do you mean the medium or just uh uh cinema in general the moving picture
1: i guess just cinema i did like i did like the medium though i did have a dark room in my house so i would shoot um you know do my my still stuff with but i um film was just interesting to me because you got to shoot and and and, and i just like the look of it um you know i like 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 the different stocks you could use and i just like the look of it i also like the um, back then, it was kind of nice that you send your film away and then wait to see how you got it back, or was a hair in the gate. there was, was like an element of surprise, even with stills back then. There's an element of surprise, but nowadays, in digital world, you know it's just it's just right there. You know you can just check immediately. So I don't know, but I I just kind of fell in love with the look and feel of film altogether.
0: Yeah, I still shoot uh, film stills. I luckily I had a whole a little Red Bull refrigerator full of film, which I'm sure they'd love to hear me say there isn't product in it, but uh, I got a whole bunch of uh, uh, film before everything got really expensive. But that, that feeling of like sending it off is still, uh, I think, I think, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but um, shooting film, I think builds a discipline in people because you have to, you know, with digital, it's so easy to just be like, ah, set up the shot. I'll look at it and know what's wrong, versus having to meter it and line everything up right. and know that it's right.
1: Yeah, um, yeah,
0: but it's still tons of fun.
1: Yeah, I do miss my light meter and stuff. I I still have it in my cabinet, and I I sat back there. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna dust that thing off and play with it a little bit.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you on. Uh, I've noticed, especially you know, working around people who've only been around. I learned on 16 millimeter film um, when I went to film school but people who've never seen film when you pull out the light meter and before the camera even gets turned on, you like light everything and you're like, all right, just go. People think it's, it's back to the idea of like being a, a wizard, you know, where yeah. like you had to like put your eye behind the thing and go, no, trust me, it'll look good. Like it's that again. With the- right, <laughs> so Sometimes right, I right, use it right.
1: as a trick. <laughs> I know Josh, Josh is, um, I mean, he, he's instrumental in everything. He's pretty much like the DP of everything too. And, and, and he, and he really likes film too. And I still have some of my film cameras and he's like, we got to shoot some of these things. So
0: I know. Yeah. Do, uh, when you, so something, I don't, I, uh, I knew one guy, I used to work for a Red Bull, uh, back in college. And, uh, so the action sports world, I was a photographer, but mostly doing events. So the action sports stuff has always been interesting to me. And I was just a snowboarder my whole life or am a snowboarder. Um, but, uh, the ocean, photog- like uh, ski photography, snowboard photography, all kind of m- make sense. I get it. You know, there's some elements to deal with. But uh, the ocean guys always confuse the hell out of me because that's so much uh, <laughs> you have to float. You know, the, the having everything in the rig, like having to pull focus that way. What are some of those uh, early challenges that, that you kind of had to figure out when you were transferring from, uh, you know, shooting photos to shooting um, motion in the ocean?
1: <laughs> motion. that's good motion in the ocean um well <laughs> i mean honestly like pulling focus is really hard like a lot of a lot of cameramen even to this day they they make a mo- water housing and they they're like a point and shoot the monitors in the back so they just they're just basically pointing and shooting you know um i do like to have a sh- camera that i put on my shoulder in a water housing so i can rest and i can actually pull focus and you can you can do some pretty cool stuff but um i think um I think um, making a water housing for a still camera was pretty simple back in the day. I mean, it's still compared to nowadays, it, it, and it's 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 much easier now because it's just you can do everything there in the still world. It seemed like um, you know you only had thirty six shots, and you had to make sure everything's perfect, so you didn't want to mess it up. And and then with video, um, not only messing up the shot, hammering, hammering, you know, you could worry about being out of focus and and all these different stops. So there was, I was making my own housings way back then, and then I I got this guy Taro Pascual to start making water housings for me, and and that was a big a jump for me, I guess. When I I made a little metal box that you know I couldn't really do nothing with, and then I had a professional make something that I could pull focus, and um, I, I mean it was really helpful. I think I got totally lost in the whole question there. <laughs> That's fine.
0: Uh, like I said, very very conversational. Doesn't matter because I, I when I was uh doing a a bit of internet research on you, I'd seen that. It, it, apparently you have invented quite a few, um, rigging, uh, solutions for, um, water filmmaking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Josh here. He's, he's like the master, the master of it all. And he, um, we, we, we devised a couple gimbals that we could, um, do a like long steady shots from the water and we, and and have a camera in a really dangerous position in the water on a jet ski just for the driver. And we could control it from two miles away instead of endangering a bunch of people. So, um, we did that we put a red camera. We had all different kind of cameras in there. But, I mean, I mean, we used a Z camera. Um,
0: oh, interesting. Um just You after, never see those out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was because it was a, such a small little head that we, were, we, we 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 put in the bigger head and the um shutter F1. We've put in the the Canon 50 to 1000 millimeter lens. It's probably one of our favorite lenses because mm. uh, you know, we have so much for the action and uh and nature stuff. It's like the perfect lens and we put that in the big gimbal, we could do anything from there, but the smaller gimbal we had to resort to a Z cam.
0: Gotcha. How did that perform when cut cutting together with like a, a monstro or or whatever you're using? And you know, obviously like a GoPro is gonna look like a GoPro, but were those pretty easy to match? What
2: do you think, Quick? We use so many different types of cameras on this shoot. So many different types of cameras, so many different lenses. We had different cameras used for Uh, you know, different reasons. Like we had a whole group of Verite guys that were all using Canon cameras. All the long lens guys were mostly using RED cameras. We had Phantom 4K flex cameras and we had a Z cam. So we had like, I mean, it was a melting pot of, of, of pixels. So uh, we tried to shoot RAW as often as we could and build uh, LUTs that would sort of match based on where cameras were located. If they were going to be backlit most of the day or front lit or side lit, like we would build these LUTs for all of our operators because we had so many cameras running at the same time, you know, Mike can't be at every single camera. And we can't even send him a feed from every single camera just because of the location and the restrictions that we have there. So we kind of, you know, we there was some biting of the bullet, right? Uh, so we did everything we could in, in pre-production uh, to try to match as best we could. Had really no issues. The Z cam was probably the only strange Camera. The yes. only thing that we didn't really expect to use, we were originally going to use uh, in that system. The head we were using on the the shot of her head that we got it was essentially like a beta unit. It was a it was a very early one. They had no one. They weren't in the wild yet, so we were using it out at, at Nazare for this particular job. And we were going to use a Komodo, but the Komodo we were having issues. Mike didn't like the the, the frame rates that we weren't we weren't really capable of the frame rates that he wanted. So we uh, we had been talking to Shotover and they had been working with ZCam, and they had oh. we had a beta ZCam, which I think was a it was a full frame six K ZCam. I'm guessing they went to market ultimately. Um, yeah, I and think
0: that's called the F8 or something.
2: Something yeah. like well, I know they have an eight. I think they have an eight K and a six K full frame. Oh, maybe I it's believe. the F6. <laughs>
0: it could
2: be Something like that. Yeah, it was yeah. A, it wasn't something. It was it was hard to get a hold of it. Uh, okay. we had to talk to some pretty high up people at ZCam to get this. They weren't quite ready to send it out to market at the time. Um, I've never
0: even seen one in person. I've seen every, I've held every camera under the sun, except those ones.
2: <laughs> it's small. So it's, it's like a, it's, it's sort of like a, it, it looks like a GoPro on steroids, you know, like a, it's like a big GoPro. It basically looks like a sensor block. Have you ever seen like the Sony cameras? the venice you split it out
0: the rialto yeah
2: yeah so it's almost like that it's just a sensor block with a mount on it the mount's, you know the pl mounts bigger than the camera uh in some cases and then uh, we had to mock up a a control solution for it but matching wise it wasn't really a problem you know um that camera was sort of a glorified action camera that was really really close to the waves um it didn't really have the dynamic range i think that we would have we would have wanted um, luckily for us, it's, you know, Nazareth is not quite like Hawaii, where you have this big, bright, beautiful sky with white clouds right. floating around. And then you've got this shadow of a wave that's going right across your, you know, the guy you're trying to shoot or the girl you're trying to shoot. Uh, so it's not like this insanely contrasty situation there. So as long as I stay out of the whitewash, everything pretty much held and we were able to to time it up nicely in post. So I think it all it all matched, but it was a lot of cameras to mix. Sure. Who was you know, the
0: uh, colorist on the project?
2: Oh, man, what's his name? I didn't I didn't speak with him too much. Oh, okay. It was, uh, I was mostly working with the, we were working with the editorial staff. Sam? Um, Sam, Sam, was, Sam, Sam was an editor, but he wasn't doing the coloring. Yet. Yeah, yeah, no, I was mostly just talking. To, yeah, so those guys, Yeah. Chris, the director, was really, I think he was. he was mostly super involved with that aspect. Got it. Uh, and then all of our Verite stuff was with the C500s, which is just a really. Is that what you're using that's, right now?
0: That's this webcam. Yeah. <laughs> webcam.
2: Oh, that's you, your webcam?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, when I started this podcast, I had just I got serial number eight. This is a, oh, nice. so, like, I, I was like the first one in the country to get one. And uh-huh. uh, I was like, man, this is going to be great. You know, uh, production, I get to charge way more now. This is awesome. Go. And then pandemic hit. And then I started a podcast, so it, it, I love these cameras. Though they're they're fantastic.
2: I've always liked Canon cameras ever since the. And you know, I basically went from C three hundred and then didn't use another Canon camera until the C five hundred Mark II. Actually, we played with a, with an original C five hundred a little bit because it had the quad. Was all right. It had like the quad yeah. out, so we could, it was good for helicopter work because we could have three, four fiber lines going in, and we could record inside the helicopter. Um, so that was kind of cool. That was a cool thing that we could do with the C-500. Um, although we didn't really do it that much, but it was a you know it was an option that we sort of had in the kit. But I've always loved the look of cannons. Yeah. I like well, they're, the, C- they're, I the C-300.
0: Yeah, I, I find them... Uh, I was talking to um, someone else who shot... I think it was Gail Tattersall. Mm-hmm. But they had used it on uh, Grace and Frankie, if that was the interview I'm thinking of. And I think what... I was like, why doesn't anyone use Canon for film? And they were like, well, it's mostly just because like for TV, it's everywhere. But for like movies, it's not because it's just so easy to use. And I think it it's mostly just the um, the bodies, like the outputs, you know, you, there's not enough like outputs and because they're plenty sturdy.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. No, they're great. And the five, the great thing about the C500 and what we were doing is they're like, they're very well sealed. The five, oh, yes. like very well. Sealed. We had a, a couple of C500s legit take waves. You know what I mean? Like not in a housing, splash up, you know, a guy running in the, a Verite guy running in the waves, coming up to his knees, splash up across the camera. The camera's still working great to this day. So it's, uh, yeah. (laughs) Were there any? They have the sealed buttons, so.
0: Yeah. Um, Was there anything you learned about using those cameras that you could pass on to uh, other users, i.e. me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I always, I always ask people like how they expose it. Cause I've been exposing everything real middle now. Whereas the older, like the C300s used to have to kind of
2: yeah, get so, a lot of light in there. I would say Mike can touch on this. So, but on our, for this job, all of our Verite cameras, so our crazy human beings literally running around all day with cameras on their shoulders. Those were right. that's all C500, Right um so we didn't have to we didn't have to put them in terribly dangerous situations but they were mostly shooting people and i i feel like what we were getting the the best output we were getting was just maybe like two-thirds over on skin tones it's almost like how you go about shooting like if you were using like 500 tungsten or something it's like very similar to the way that you try to get that because we're always going for skin tone all this all the verite guys are just shooting human beings they're shooting faces and right Know, people running out of the water and things so uh, but exposure wise I think two thirds over on your key <coughs> looks really nice and it's easy to play with too but I guess it depends on what you're shooting also like if you're choosing to shoot raw or not um, in this case yeah we yeah went raw with everything on this one um, but yeah and no, I mean it's a it's a great verite camera it's got everything you need for one man sort of band situation it's got all you know. It's got the grip on the side, which is fantastic, and you know, the the sensor is beautiful. Um, and we were that we grip just,
0: has oh, saved we, my life.
2: <laughs> yeah, has it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it just slips out on this one, but you've got the straps You've oh. got the
2: strap. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got the hand strap to hold it on there. Uh, but no, it's a really great camera. I just we like the sensor on it. You know, the sensor looks good. It's kind of. The term that we more often, you know, you always hear buttery, right? Buttery is sort of like the word that you hear is like, oh, I love these Leica lenses. They're so buttery, you know, like you hear all these things. And and, and for the Canon, we always feel like it's it's not buttery. It's kind of creamy. (laughs) It's like you got to churn it, you know, it's like not quite completely churned yet. And then you've got this nice, creamy look to it where it doesn't look like insanely vintage or something. It's still very sharp, but you have this sort of creamy palette, sort of like your box on the Zoom screen here, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed with these, I've I've stopped using diffusion because the image oh, yeah. feels already too, not too, but like uh, smooth enough. You know, it yeah. doesn't mean. Yeah. Um, speaking of cameras, I actually wanted to know, because obviously when GoPros first came out, everyone was super stoked on them and didn't really know how to I, w- I did uh, my Red Bull employee training in Las Vegas when the first GoPro came out and I was showing employees like Hey, look at this thing. And they didn't even know what it was. And I'm on the Vegas, like gambling with the camera. Just look at this. And no one knew. No one. ever was like, that's interesting. No one uh, dive tackled me. How did they, how did uh, those little cameras kind of change uh, um, water action sports? Cause I imagine that's like what they were built for seeing as the guy who made it was a surfer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. He was a surfer actually. You know, it's funny. Um, I was back in the day. I was using this um, Photosonics 100 uh, foot load film, um, really small little camera. We could do 100 foot loads with a 3.5 millimeter lens. And we were using a Chopo, and, and we were getting these like in the in the tube shots um, uh, on film, um, and they were just like a GoPro shot. And when when the GoPro came out, I'm like, oh shit, man, <laughs> um, this is like they get it kind of like fit that mold perfectly. And then uh, except for it wasn't quite as good as. The quality, but it, it's gone up and up and up and up. And, and it's amazing like, the stabilization and everything. We use that um, on Chasing Mavericks as well. We had those all over. Um, that They, they said, I can't remember what they were like the second GoPro. So I had a whole box. I still have a, some remnants of leftovers of those sitting around. But um, yeah, they, they've, they've changed a lot and they're amazing cameras and they're great to just throw everywhere. In the surf world though they they're so wide they do make the wave look flat like you made a 100 foot wave and it looks like it's like three feet sometimes you know
0: interesting
1: so the only time it looks good is if you're actually in the barrel and completely in the barrel and then it, it, it but if not it makes a really big wave look small um but it, it's awesome though they're they're they're, they're awesome and then plus you can get some some decent audio sometimes you get little blurbs of stuff that you you know
2: you can, so it's yeah I think I think gopro is awesome. Yeah, they're almost more valuable for audio.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah.
2: But we treat them like expendables. You know, they're like in the budget right. with tape. So it's like, yeah. so we're not terrified of them. Like the other cameras, we you know we spend all this money and all this time and and trying to create, develop technology to protect everything. And the GoPros is kind of like, oh, we'll just tape it on over here and suction cup it over here. And if we get if we get sixty percent of them back, then it's a win. Yeah. Nice. The win for the guys on the beach that pick them up the next day when they wash up shore. <laughs> Every, you know, people even if you go to the North Shore of Oahu, is like the you know, during the surf contest, the security guys that are there twenty four seven, they've got like a bag of GoPros by the end of the contest because they just wash up on the beach after the yeah. fact. So, yeah. So we sort of they're helpful for that, but they're great for getting audio clips from people out there that don't really realize that they're being recorded, you know, so you get sort of more real, true, true audio emotion. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I and never, we, were, you know, we were using such a medium of cameras
1: and all, and like Josh is right, we used so many different cameras that like the GoPro would kind of just, we could throw in there. And then also we used, I've been shooting Garrett since he was a young kid. So we were using a lot of old footage and archival footage that was mm-hmm. easy to match with all this mix of stuff anyway. So it kind of was a, a film that was made to have a Mac mixed bag of footage.
0: The, yeah, that that makes the, do- the uh, series really... Uh... Great, you know when when you have, what were we just watching? I can't remember. In any case, having having great archival footage really does like make any documentary about an individual or, or an event really um, shine instead of just going straight through interviews. You know.
1: Yeah. Um, I've, I've got how a how roll you... of film in my in my refrigerator. I was supposed to do, but and and it and it it was never processed. But it says Garrett on it, so I, I I've got to process it and just see. But it's it's probably 15 years old. I don't know what it's got missing in there, but I, I do got to process it and just see what's on that (laughs) roll.
0: That'd be a great, yeah. A little special feature on the, uh, (laughs) how'd you end up meeting him?
1: Um, his brother Liam was a pipeline surfer. And so I, um, his brother Liam used to make a lot of surf videos way back in the day, God, like 30 years ago. And so, um, I would just give him footage for his movies a long time ago. Um, and then he, his brother kind of took care of all the Japanese servers from Japan. And, and I spoke a little Japanese, so I got to meet him through that. And then I met Garrett from Liam.
0: Interesting. You know, uh, I, I have, uh, my brain bounces around a lot, so you'll have to forgive me. But earlier you had mentioned, we're going straight back to gear. Earlier you had mentioned uh, like a two-mile radio control. And I was wondering how you guys were pulling that off, because obviously line of sight's probably easier on when it's just ocean. But I can't imagine you're using a deck.
1: No, no Teradek. Um, but when a wave comes in between anything you're using, um, it, it becomes a problem. Um, but we, we oh, use true. the AB on Air. Josh can probably explain better. Yeah, like it on Air system
2: is it, it's, it's definitely hard to do. Yeah, yeah. You th- I mean, you think you'd have a lot of line of sight, but when the waves are so tall... You know, and your camera hundred foot. Up, perhaps. Off. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps <laughs> when you're going in between the waves, you know, we, we, we tend to to. there's a, a really good possibility we're going to lose it. Right. So our transmission. So we would use these um, uh, microwave transmitters they actually came from the uh, broadcast world. They're made by an Israeli company called um, AB on air. So mm-hmm. if you ever go to like an NFL game, you see tons of these things and they're all like they're, you know, they're, they mount onto a battery plate, you know, so they're all in the back of these guys running around with their broadcast cameras. So they had finally gotten to the point where um, they could transmit, you know, a significant distance with only a, I think it's, a, it's, it's a sub one frame delay. So the latency is like wow. non-existent. So it's like seven milliseconds or something of delay. So our, our latency is less than a frame you imperceivable, right? You don't even notice it when you're operating. So we needed something that would let us, that we could operate by. We needed like right. zero latency and need to be able to operate. So we actually had two radio systems. We had a low, like 900 meg, like low frequency uh, transmitters for camera control. So pan, tilt, zoom, that sort of thing. Uh, and that was its own standalone system. And then we had the AB on air systems that we would use to transmit audio and video. Um, the grand plan was using those, using those transmitters, they also have, because it's made for broadcast world, you know, they have that, they have a whole secondary transmission built in where, the, you know, someone could adjust your iris remotely from the truck or whatever. Right. You know they, they have all these control pr- packets that move back and forth. Uh, and our master plan was to ultimately tap into that, to use that for pan, tilt, zoom, and then have everything in one system that fits in one, you know, little, little Pelican case is easy to travel with. We could zip around the world and do that, but that's ultimately how we did. it. And we've been working with those guys for a long time. Our early on uh, test systems were using that system as well. So they make like a portable system, which is quite nice. Um, and that works, yeah, it works really well. We had some, you know, antenna issues one day. I know we went out there one day and we weren't that far away, and we were sort of losing connection and stuff. Which I'm surprised none of that made it into the into the documentary because they're. <laughs> You know, like, the director's sitting there filming me as I'm, like, trying to figure out why nothing's working. You know, and there's these massive <laughs> waves coming through. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, this is going to be a great show. It's just going to be me over here. <laughs> just me just, like,
0: fucking failing. everything up.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be it's, yeah, it's going to be a whole episode about just, like, us failing at the one thing we had to do, you know. But, you know, we ultimately got it all worked out, and it was great. So got some great footage and everything. So it's That's a awesome. very good system. I yeah, Chris, it. Chris
1: Smith had just finished doing the Tiger King. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Just right. right before right before this show and and he mic'd those guys all up and then so they were micing um Josh and I up um in the morning and then we'd be talking shit throughout the day and then and I would always forget mine was on. Josh was smart, he goes, Oh I turned mine off. I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. I just Bro, muted all day. The sound well, guys I didn't think that up, something bad I mean. was gonna come out there, so I was happy to see that we didn't get um thrown under the bus too bad there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother level of trust. I've had to, I've uh even just doing like random acting for friends. You're like, I just, f-. or obviously talking shit about maybe an AD who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they have their, they're like, wait a I've second. I've never
2: encountered that. So I don't know what that would yeah. Yeah, what be like.
0: I've <laughs> only worked on perfect. Or you could just Actually it in
1: the bathroom. You know what I mean? I don't know. You know <laughs> oh, the bathroom right. ones were great.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, I, you always see the sound guy. I've seen that. He's just sitting there and you go,
2: <laughs> <laughs> just immediately yeah yeah that's funny
0: uh, you know that reminds me mike you've uh worked on a handful of um feature film, like narrative films uh and i was wondering if you could explain to people who have no handle on uh what action sports is like like how those two worlds kind of um uh mirror each other and how they differ
1: I mean, you know, some are set up, you know, and you can set up, you, you can set up a shot, you can block out a shot, you can figure out, you know, exactly how it's going to play out, and so it's very controlled. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest difference. Like when you're when you're dealing with Mother Nature, um, you can't block out a shot, and and, and everyone's just kind of out there, and you're you're dealing with the the fog and the waves and the wind and the spray. So, so I think that's probably the biggest difference between, um, you know, the narrative and. The not narrative, you know, like probably How, mother nature. Yeah. Dealing with, are it.
0: the, are the like crew interactions pretty much the same as the, um, you know, set kind of life, kind of the same, or is in documentary, do you, f- or especially in action sports, do you find that it's a little looser?
1: Yeah. It's way looser. i um, shooting sports because like we, when you're out there, you're on a set, you know, doing a narrative, you're like, okay, roll cameras. Everyone's like speed, speed. And then in and then your action, then you go, Basically when you have 15 or 20 cameras shooting um, nature or some, or waves out there, they're scattered all up and down the beach. You're basically not, each guy sees a different wave or something happening. So you can't tell each guy to roll camera. this You have to have trust in your cameraman that they're getting what you want. And, and then they're relaying to you or to Josh or quick, whatever questions may pop up. But you, you don't have the luxury of looking at all the cameras and rolling and doing all that. I mean, and, and some, some cases we get to look at some cameras, but we can never look at them all. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing to me is like, it's just control. You don't have control because it just, you know, it, sometimes some guy there has a different view of Europe on the cliff and then a, it, there could be a bird coming through the shop with a dolphin and you want him to roll on that and then get the shot, but you know, but you can't, you can't tell it all. So I think the lack of control is what the hardest thing is about shooting sports.
0: Sure. This is actually a side question that I just thought of. How important is pre-record for you guys?
1: Well, it depends on the guy, I guess. Really, some of the guys really love the pre-record and it's good like especially like for certain things like if you, you know, like I mean, we were using that a lot with the Phantom camera as
2: well, right? Well, it's like you can only That's use how it. it works, really. yeah. yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, know, you can I mean, you can yeah, you can go the other route. You can hit go. Like you can sort of set where you want your You know where you want your meat and potatoes to exist. Um, All of our Phantom stuff, our trigger point is usually about a third of the way into the clip, if that makes sense. So it just sort of—I don't know if you've filmed with the Phantom at all, but it—it basically remembers the last third of the length, and then it records the next two thirds of the length, basically, of Mm -hmm. however long. Because you can set it up to have every clip whatever length you want, based on how many you can fit on the mag or in the RAM that the camera has. Um, It's really—I'll say—I'll say say most guys don't use pre-record. OK, uh, I would say most of our operators don't. Uh, we have one that Rick does. Right. Yeah, we have one guy who only uses pre-record and a long pre-recorded that like a significant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a like maximum, whatever the maximum he can have is there. Uh, and I think that's because uh, that particular guy, that's just he's already a really good operator. He shoots lots of lots of surf all the time. And that's sort of his method and we don't want to throw a wrench into his existing method as long as as long as he's getting what we're asking for you know what we're setting up then it's good it's fine it's it doesn't we don't we don't really particularly care how he hits record
0: you know? right 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 so um,
2: well, and i think the reason a tendency in the beginning to have to uh, record and then get it you know there's like a you lose a little bit of that stability right at the beginning of the shot and i think he's trying to avoid that
0: sure yeah cuz the the reason I ask is um I just got to test out the Raptor for a week mm-hmm. and um in 8K the pre-record is 3 seconds mm. and uh my friend James Buckman is a uh, skateboard cinematographer and he was and he just bought one and he and he's furious cuz <laughs> he needs like you know 20 seconds or whatever like, to seconds, do, like yeah. a full trick.
2: Yeah.
0: And he's like what am I supposed to do with 3 seconds? I was like really high uh, resolution slow-mo, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That that's camera great. is
1: pretty amazing though. That that V Raptor is pretty cool. We, we actually it's have that nice. gimbal now. We we went we from, from that we went from that Z cam to a V Raptor in a little bit bigger gimbal, but now we can do you know much higher frame frame rates and 8k and
2: uh yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. The menu yeah, we'll system on
0: that's a lot nicer. The size of it's great.
2: Yeah, you can we we're setting it up. We originally had that camera set up to be controlled entirely from an iPad, yep. which is
0: that thing's nice.
2: It's nice. Well, when you throw in a helicopter or in a head, all of a sudden, it's a little less nice. <laughs> sure. Because you're basically going, you know, you're going from USB-C to Ethernet and then Ethernet through the head and then to like um, to into, your, into your, your iPad or whatever it is you're using or router, however you want to do it. And uh, I think that little handshake, that talking handshake between the camera and the iPad, it gets a little glitched up. So we're like, you're in the helicopter, there's crazy stuff happening. And then Mike's over there like having to reconnect, 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 just just keep hitting it until it sort of connects to it. Uh, But they've upgraded now. So I, I like how you can control it with the small HD monitors. A little a different yeah. interface, so we don't have that loss anymore. um So that's going to be pretty beneficial. But yeah, now the V Raptor is great. There's one issue, I, and then maybe they fix this, but you can't shoot five and a half k on a V Raptor. Five no, it just goes
0: eight, seven, and then six.
2: Yeah, and then they then they list six k. It's six k s thirty five. Right when you go right. to it, it says yeah, which it is not s thirty five.
0: It's, a little it's just bigger, bigger isn't it's it?
2: Bigger, yeah. It's bigger, which is which is for us. If we're shooting our own project, that's fine. We don't really care. We got a little vignette. We understand. We have the resolution. We know we got it there. Uh, but when you have clients and stuff, they're like, "What's all this shit?" Right. That's not you know, image around the outside. So I wish we could shoot you know like the Monstro, like these other cameras. You can shoot five point five K. You can set in your own resolution. But for some reason, the V Raptor they haven't done that. It's just a little. I
0: mean, I do know having talked to the Red guys. And I don't, I'm not a red owner. I've, I've generally bemoaned those cameras, but they're <laughs> really like, but, uh, having talked to those guys, they are apparently very active listeners when it comes to people's complaints about it. So <laughs> I would yeah. just email them and tell them like, we need this. And they'll be like, all right, if we can oh, cut yeah. it in
2: There's a, I think there's a team of us telling them. So,
0: oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's a team of us telling them, uh, telling it's them probably
0: on their radar really then. Like. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it is. Uh, Mike, I wanted to ask, uh, especially growing up in like an action sports environment, um, I was wondering if you could speak to the mentality of these athletes and maybe how or if that's uh, kind of rubbed off on you at all. Because um, I know I have a friend who was a, a professional motocross rider for Red Bull and his the way he, he quit that and became a painter. And now he's, his paintings go for tens of thousands of dollars and he's painting all the time. And like he just took the track mentality and applied it to art um and I always try to apply that myself. And I was wondering if, if that has kind of rubbed off on either of you.
1: I mean, for me, I mean, I was a surfer originally. And right. um and um and I just always, you know, wish I would get like get a good picture of yourself or your friends, because you'd be paddling out and you watch your friends in the tube, you're like, Oh, that's so sick, and you'd talk about it to each other. But back then there was not much you know stuff. And then when I started taking pictures, I I kind of liked it, but I was, I'd still like always go surfing, and then at that very end, I'd go out and shoot a little bit, and and then after um after I knew I wasn't going to be a, you know a big winter, um surfer, but I, I enjoyed shooting pictures. I kind of started shooting more and more, and then I I got to the point that I ended up not even bringing a surfboard. I just brought camera equipment, and I'd just borrow like Kelly Slater's surfboard or whoever surfboard <laughs> to go for a quick surf. But um, just
0: borrow his surfboard, like you know yeah. we all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or, or or any of the pros because I, I would be traveling with them so i would you know it would, would trade off but um i think um i mean i don't know if it ever rubbed off i mean I, it just made me realize that i wanted to, that someone should be getting pictures of these guys in these waves and these 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 angles that people never got to see like when you dive under a wave and you see go go guy go by back then no one see that now everyone does it but like 30 years ago, 40 years. I think it's been 40 years since I started shooting. Um, no one did that back then. And so it was kind of so cool. I think that's what intrigued me is to get these unique shots that I saw when I went surfing myself and then. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, It is interesting. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, overall the, the oceans, you know, the, the least seen of any part of our planet, <laughs> let alone just, you know, below someone. So it is, it is really cool to be able to share, uh, a more um, personal experience with people, especially if they're, you know, not part of that culture, that, that world.
1: Yeah. And you get intimate and then you get underwater, you got the whales and all these kind of things. So we, we do a little bit of, of, you know, natural history stuff and all that kind of stuff too. And I do think it's, it is just beautiful and interesting. And you're right. The ocean is, so it's kind of like going to the moon or some, at the space. It's still so uncharted.
0: Yeah. Uh, you don't have to, if you don't want to, but I was wondering if you guys could share some, um, maybe some surprises, some, some happy things that happened and maybe some, uh, some setbacks that maybe people could learn from or, or uh, yeah, you know, maybe some, something that uh, didn't quite go the the way you planned and how you, how you uh, problem solved through it.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, (laughs) traveling with all this equipment is hard too, I guess getting from Hawaii to chase a wave and they say, Hey, you know, you need to be there in three days, it's going to be a hundred feet. And to get a crew of people and, and equipment through customs and through all that and get everyone there, um, I think right off the bat, we kind of learned that that's a problem. And um, so we kind of ended up staging most of our equipment there. Um, so that, that was a big mishap, I think, in the beginning because it was a little scramble there. Um, Quick, you probably have some better ideas. Quick puts out most of all the fires. He's do, like, a,
2: do we have a – I don't remember there being a scramble to get the equipment there. Well, there was – we uh, – we, <laughs> got it all there. So that worked. (laughs) (laughs) We we succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. We have to move equipment out. Like I have like around me on my desk, I have like multiple carnet documents just sitting around for different gear that we have in different places around the world, uh, or that's ready to travel. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, if you're, if you find yourself in the industry and you're, and you're going to have to start traveling a lot, uh, and you have a a big kit like we do, which we normally travel with two or three pallets of stuff. Um, you know, you want to get a really good sort of like freight broker, ideally mm. one that works in the film industry or the entertainment industry, someone who works for someone who moves equipment for like, you know, big band like ACDC and things like that. Like these guys can make magic happen. So uh, we have a guy named Adam Prohaska. His company is um, Atlas. And he, I mean, he's moving gear for us right now. He moves gear. For, we have equipment in Tahiti that's on his way back here. Like he's moving it. Carne's there. It's all coming back. Um, those, those, having guys like that are lifesavers where you can email them at like 10 o'clock at night, the night before and be like, Oh, I got to get all this stuff to Portugal really, really quickly. And then the next morning he's like, okay, there's going to be a truck at your house at like 1030 <laughs> in the morning. And it's good. Or one time we just had like someone in a minivan show up to pick up some gear <laughs> and then I was just like, I hope this is the right person that I'm giving, you know, like a, you know, $1.3 million worth of GAC to, and then right. they just disappear with a van of equipment and then uh, you fly out to Portugal and no, there it is. It's all It works. That's so great. You know? So you, you find somebody that you trust and then you can really travel. Um, big, I can't really think big speed bumps. I mean, every day is just, you're just living on a speed bump. So I guess you're just waiting for the mountain. Um, right. I don't think we ever really hit any mountains on this one. Um, you can't plan. The second we would try to plan, we'd wake up, you know, before the sun comes up, and we're standing out there on the cliff, and you can't see anything. It's just fog. You know, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Uh, everyone's all ready, and then you just get phone calls like, "Nah, uh-uh, we can't shoot anything." Right. you know? So weather out there, you can't overcome it. There's no, there's no lens that'll just shoot through fog. You know, it just doesn't. There's no. There's no solution. So it's just, it's really just time uh, and effort. That's really all we could ever do for that. But, you know, we have stuff break down all the time. I mean, you know, we, people get hurt, especially surfers, our crew, we, you know, we do everything we can to keep our people safe and ourselves safe. Um, But the surfers that are going out there, they, you know, they're doing their own thing. We're not, we're not calling up surfers saying, Hey, go jump in the water and do this. We're going to catch it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and not just for liability reasons, but we don't want to put anyone in a position where they're uncomfortable. So, um, doing something. But these guys, the, the people that surf Nazare, they, I don't think they, they're they missing something in their brain that tells them this is a bad idea. You know, they're, <laughs> they don't have that fear, you know. Um, like, I wouldn't get in there. I don't know. Mike, would you surf Nazare? No, it's just a gigantic shore break. It's scary. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess having one scare
1: is getting people in the water and out of the water safely you know especially cameramen um that is one reason that we did that gimbal so we could you know minus one guy out there but mm-hmm. um yeah I think we, we didn't have any major hiccups I mean we we did have some antennas and then they shipped the wrong ones and so but then it was a shipping thing and they they shipped the ro- the right set of antennas to us but it, it took so long that I think I think we got back here and it was like a year past covid and then they they arrived like a year later jeez. Oh, so (laughs) we we made stuff work but i mean i guess you always got to have a little backup plan you know how how to how to get stuff doing so
0: yeah yeah two is one one is none as they say uh was there any like uh happy accidents or any like any kind of magic that you were really stoked things that went better than expected
1: uh i think we got some really good waves of the guys and we got um, it, it is a lot about um, guys getting injured and how how rough it is in the ocean and so we were lucky enough to get some really good surfing and to get let people feel how scary it is with the accidents and we had people on the beach getting accidents and we we got all of that without having a really bad accident so um no one died and so I guess and people got to feel what it's really like to be out in these big waves. so I think that was that was a, a kind of a win thing because someone no one got hurt you know what i mean and, and that's and, an intense
0: um, win no one died
1: <laughs> yeah i mean people ended up in the hospital but no one died yeah
0: jeez of, i think a
1: lot of people ended up in the hospital but no one died but i mean it, it's, that, it's that kind of, of a show you know it's very dangerous out there
0: yeah well i mean you got an emmy for it so it's yeah. uh, <laughs> you know the people recognize the skill uh Cause yeah, like movies, you know, one of my favorite snowboard movies, uh, when I was in college was, uh, art of flight, which obviously like everyone, everyone saw that. Uh, and if you're listening and you didn't, you definitely need to go see it. But, um, that even, even doing those massive mountains, like unless there's a, um, a, uh, well, except for the Darwin range, but in, in any case, you know, massive mountains, unless there's an avalanche, it's not the most dangerous sport, so to speak. But people are still getting, you know, wrapped up and falling over and stuff. But yeah. I, I, the ocean just is far scarier, in my opinion. Although I don't surf, so. Yeah, well,
1: Avalanche sounds pretty scary to me. So. Avalanche, Avalanche does, yeah.
0: Yeah, avalanches are not chill. Yeah, yeah.
1: They, yeah, you don't, uh, through, you don't, I don't know how you guys check and like,
0: out. Know, Pe- yeah, people will just throw chucks, like, sticks of dynamite out of helicopters and just go, that ah, looks good, you know. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: there's, there's people who are, you know super experts at that. But yeah, I guess with, I've never been caught in one, but I guess with avalanches, it's like, yeah, you don't float to the top. Like you said. And, uh, it's so it becomes fluid. You like, you can't tell where up is and you can't like, I imagine getting tossed by a wave.
1: Then it becomes, yeah. Then you're locked. Mm Yeah, Then you're just like, and then you're breathing and it turns into like cement.
0: Yeah. Oof. Um, happier topic. Let me think. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, with all of the, uh, this is a weird question, but um, how do you how do you make how do you make a, a documentary feel more cinematic and less like? Uh, I mean, these days a lot all documentaries are, are incredible, but like what what are some of the those things that you lean on to make it feel more like a a film or more like um, a story than just kind of maybe an old school uh verite kind of thing.
1: Because
2: hmm. especially
0: kind of like in the action sports world, I've seen the, yeah. the level of cinema get higher and higher, you know? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that was essentially our, our job on this entire project, you know, right? Um it's a handful of really good you know, verite kind of, you know, documentary filmmakers. Um And then our job was essentially to come in and try to, and and try to capture these waves in a really cinematic way. And I think ultimately that sort of comes down to cinematic movement, right? So, I mean, like Mike and I, we did everything we could to, to get really great high-end cameras, cinema cameras, uh, you know, stabilized and in locations where we can rip it up and down the beach on an ATV and then get these what appear to be sort of like dolly shots. And we could do push-ins. And so we were doing... We were doing the things that you would normally see done on a regular film set, you know, with a techno crane or something in a controlled environment, pushing in and moving around. But we're doing it on a larger scale with like ATVs and, and stabilized heads.
0: The illusion of control. That's <laughs> fascinating. That's actually a great way to think about it.
2: Yeah, the illusion of control. Yeah. Think That's a good thing, thing. Right. So we don't really, so we're trying to, you know, we're just sort of thrown out into the ether with these devices that we're trying to capture this image with. Um, and you know, it's a lot of trust, right? We're just trusting everyone, everyone who's got a, their hand on a record button. There's a huge amount of trust that we have to throw, uh, their way. So it's a lot of vetting. All our guys were.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: fully <laughs> totally vetted, but then we also operated, right? So it's like, you know, I would be on the beach in an ATV Mike would be controlling the from up above the cliff. He'd be controlling the jet ski camera. So it's like, we're all playing all these different roles. Um, all the time. But yeah, I think that was ultimately how we were able to try to make things a bit more cinematic. Um, also using much larger sensors than one might normally use, you know, from the get-go, we're like, we want to shoot everything full frame. Um, you know, in the early stages, it was uh, originally going to be sort of, uh, they wanted to go IMAX with it. Um, kind of like Dark Knight style, you know, like the opening scene yeah. and Dark Knight, it's all it's, it's all this uh, large format and then they cut back into, you know, so it's, sort of like that. It was gonna be all the stuff on the ground with the guys was gonna look very normal and then everything in the water was gonna be like this insane vista sort of footage. Um everything was gonna be larger, larger format, you know, more pixels, darker, you know, angrier, scarier. It's supposed to be sort of like those nightmares that people have. Uh, sure. Yeah. And I think that's probably how we did it. If we just had a bunch of guys with long lenses on the cliff, it would it, you know, it would look like a contest, right? It would look like a <laughs> Right. It looked like a broadcast, um, and in this case, you know, we were able to to run around and do some pretty over the top stuff with the equipment that we would built.
0: Yeah. What was your data uh, management setup like? Because that's something a lot of people don't necessarily <laughs> think about uh, on the yeah. lower ends of things.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a like... nightmare for the editor. That's for sure. <laughs> um, the editor just <laughs> Yeah.
2: It the was. Of
1: stuff. You know. I mean we kind of just kept it um per guy per day per guy
2: um you know kind of uh, the footage yeah and we had it i don't i don't think it was um it's nowhere. you're not the first person to ask us this question no. um uh, and i sure. think the answer that i give is always not the one people want i mean it was it would be uh, what if you were to go out and do it it would probably be sort of like, if you just by yourself it would be the same way uh it right. was essentially a, a handful of guys all the cards came in at the end of the day And there's like me and a couple other people in a, you know, in a house that's rented. And we have hard drives stacked up and battery backups and like a laptop. Like everything was done very, very slowly and methodically. (laughs) Um, Everything was mirrored off to different drives. And it took, you know, it was like raising a child. You know, it took a village, the whole village. (laughs) It was everyone's responsibility to make sure that when something was done dumping, you let someone know. You know, it was like everyone everything was rotating through. So it wasn't because, you know, it, in essence, it's a documentary with a, you know, with a documentary budget. Um, so we don't have, uh, you know, a different DIT for every camera system. You know, we don't have data managers for the different units. Uh, it's kind of just, it's a tight knit group of uh, of people that are working and living together uh, in, in Portugal and it ultimately worked out. So that but it's nothing glamorous on oh, that. Right. End. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. If I, let you down. Oh no. no, no, that's the.
0: I mean, but I think that's almost. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, I think anyone at any level hearing that goes like, "Okay, it's not," makes things feel more achievable if you're doing it the yeah. same way. You know, someone at home is is. Yeah.
2: Oh doing yeah. It. Totally. Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. I mean, we were responsible for all that media.
1: Yeah, it spread over such a long period of time, and with the budget we had, there's yeah, had to, yeah, everyone had to have a few different jobs. Of course. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: The uh, you know, it's it's the it's, it's especially nice with uh, programs like Hedge, where it'll send you a text message when it's done yeah. dumping, so you don't Hedge. have to just stare at
2: it the whole time. Yeah. Hedge is great. I haven't transitioned to Hedge yet. We still use uh, Shotput, Shotput yeah. Pro. But I, I have a PC, just, so uh, no sh- yeah. no
0: Shotput for me.
2: Uh, it's all right. I mean, Hedge no is great,
0: have, though. I love Hedge.
2: Yeah, yeah. We have one of our one of our favorite DITs uses Hedge. And a lot of the a lot of the companies in the, in Europe that we work for, um, they require hedge. So like you know like or oh, like, like some of the natural natural history guys, they want us to use hedge. Um, like uh, like Wild Space, Wild Space Productions, they want hedge. And uh, I don't know if Silverback, BBC might. We have only encountered. It's only been people in Europe that are like you need to use this very specific program, to to check some. You know your-
0: uh, Yeah. <laughs> that, that that probably is BBC. I've spoken to a few BBC cinematographers, and they've said that they are they just get mandates. This yeah. is what you're going to do. Like,
2: yep. Okay. That's how they do it. Yeah. They give you man. They give you very. The, yeah. It's they. They. I guess they've been doing it for so long. You know, they don't want to take any risks.
0: <laughs> That's actually uh, brings up an interesting question. Is like working with ostensibly every network under the sun and and plenty of studios. Like, do you? Is there certain ones that you uh, really love working with that, that uh, obviously you don't want to say which ones you fucking hate, but like yeah. any, any, are there any ones that kind of like stand out as really cool to work with and uh, let give you a lot of creative freedom? Maybe
2: hmm. I mean, I would say all of them really do. Yeah, I don't, hate, I don't think we hate any particular they're all just people right like there's all you know when you're when yeah. you're first getting started and you look at these companies and you know like Paramount or you know you look at these big companies and you think oh it must be terrifying all these people in suits but then you know you especially during the age of COVID you know you have these meetings with people and it's no different from what's happening right here it's just some guy in his living room or whatever right. talking about like a great idea and we're going to go shoot it or something um but yeah most of the natural history people are it's run very much like a business um mm. So on their end, it's, you know, it's a lot of, they, they've been around for so long, you know, when you're like, when you're doing a, when you're doing a, we did this one thing, Mike, what was that thing we did? Um, I think it was with the volcano. What was that called? Oh, I can't, that was a David Attenborough, that one. Yeah, it was a David, um, At- which was insane, right? To go shoot oh, stuff I, I got
0: to, get to, to get interview Gavin, uh, Gavin Thurston.
2: Okay. Oh, that's very cool. It, it yeah. was a, called The Perfect Planet. Perfect Planet. There we go. It's a Perfect Planet series. I think it ultimately I don't remember where it went. I think it went was it I don't know. Maybe it's Netflix or something. Probably not Netflix. It's probably something else. I'm not sure. we watched it it was it was great and like that that company is uh, Silverback. Silverback and they're uh you know, they're just so pro. It's like everyone working there. It's just everyone's so professional. It's, well, they're
1: very good at like even when they ask you like you, you know for like if, if they want to get stock footage, it's like basically they ask for the moon, right? They want all rights in perpetuity, all this kind of stuff. And I think they have a, this 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 thing they go through, and then tell you like, oh no, you can't. They're like, oh, okay, no problem. But and they they, <laughs> they present it so that you get kind of scared, like, oh no, no, okay. If I'm gonna make the sale, I got to do it there. But you know, you can yeah. actually negotiate and say, hey, you know because it's like you know if you got a UFO and then you sign that then it's gone and that one yeah. UFO you know they're going to sell all their shows so yeah
0: yeah UFO
1: Oh, <laughs> I've been saying something that you know Oh 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 yeah, I,
0: I didn't
1: <laughs> Yeah <laughs>
0: duh um, yeah, yeah.
1: like you know we got some lava we got some stuff that you know you don't you don't like, get that many times in life and then it, it's valuable and then we we've we've sold some and then we've got tricked into like selling it for in perpetuity that we can never sell it again. And we basically lost that whole footage for just a, a quick sale. So um, yeah, they're, they're very talented and they know exactly what they want. And they so yeah. 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 Cause
0: I saw you guys sell uh stock footage on your productions yep. website. It's just right there. You can get yep. it. Is yeah. that a, um, cause there's obviously like uh on the extreme lower end, you know, you've got creators selling lots or, whatever mm-hmm. production packs, uh, is, is stock footage like a considerable part of your, like does selling stock footage kind of enable you guys to do more or is that just kind of a nice little side? It's just a little.
1: It's just a little it, it used to be huge way back in the day. It used to be gigantic. We used to get so much, you know, um, sales on stock footage, but nowadays, you know, everyone has a phone, everyone has a GoPro and, and it's kind of, it's definitely, um, gotten watered down. Yeah. Say, but, um, but it, it is every once in a while we do have some, you know, like, someone Samsung or someone comes out with this great TV and they want an 8k this and sometimes you can get make a big sale that's like oh this is a good sale but then mm. it, it's happening less and less compared to like sure. years ago years ago yeah you know, you, there was only like five or six really good photographers running around shooting film 35 millimeter 16 millimeter of this stuff that footage was valuable and you could sell it over and over again but now now people got it and then 100 other people got it you know at the same time because of their iPhones or something you know it's like yeah. you can't do anything illegal nowadays you'll be busted you know
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that is that is actually a big part of uh uh, action sports at least the ones i've been privy to is just um stealing shots like crazy
1: yeah
0: is that uh probably not this documentary but was that a larger part of maybe the earlier work
1: (laughs) Uh, i mean guys do like all the time people i would just watch stuff like hey that's my shot and like but really, by the time you go through, oh,
0: I computers. sorry, I meant like stealing shots, like going to a location you're not supposed to be. You're talking about actually oh. stealing your footage. Oh, yeah, footage. no people actually. Yes,
1: oh, <laughs> but, like going to shots that you aren't allowed to. Like we kind of like, like all the spots that we hit, just because I was a surfer too. We we don't really go to secret spots and mm. and shoot a secret spot because don't want to blow them up, we piss off the locals, and everyone will be everyone will hate you. So even mm. like we're doing some um, stuff for Red Bull and, and Surfline right now, which is traveling all around the world chasing big waves but we're not going to shoot secret spots. It's only like well-known spots that so we're not going to piss people off. You know, like that makes total and sense. And stuff,
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah d- does that, uh, that's an interesting thought. Does that change kind of the approach from the athletes? Like, do they know, all right, we're going to a popular spot where this is more like a, almost like an ad or like an exhibition.
1: You know, it probably does. Like, I think if they go to a a, a secret spot, they're going to, the with guys with class, they're going to be very gentle and they're going to slowly go out. And they're going to try to mingle with the guys and go, but if they go out to just jaws or pipeline or Waimea, they're going straight to the peak and they're going to drop in the first big way that comes at them. They're not going to worry about any pecking order or whatever. They're just going to just go for it. But if, if it's a, a local spot and they've never been there before, they'll mingle with the crowd, kind of make friends and slowly work their way up and then, you know, take off, you know, so
0: actually that is something that, uh, completely unrelated to filmmaking, but I'm sure people are fascinated by is I think surf culture is one of those things that hasn't been really explored, uh, because it still feels very secretive, like even, you know, magicians or skateboarders, you know, those have all been kind of these previously kind of secret societies, so to speak, have been explored, but surfing still feels very like, oh, there's secret spots or a pecking order or whatever. Um, is there any way that you can kind of explain to people listening like what uh, that culture is like to especially to you as a surfer, like what um, that familial experience kind of is and, and how that sets itself up?
1: I mean, it's really simple, really. Basically, just imagine if you grew up at this spot and there's a little wave out in front of your house. And so you're a little kid. You've been paddling out there. You've been surfing that same wave with all your neighbor kids. And there's just 10 of you and you grew up surfing there. And you surf it every time you know there's a swell, You go out there surfing. You're having a great time. And if some person or three kids from that you've never seen before just walk out and just, like, take over your spot and come out and just start catching every wave, you're going to be pissed off. And then you're going to probably, if they're bigger kids, maybe you're going to flat their tires or do something. And, and so that's that's grown into a thing with the surf culture. You know, like, they have this war, like, you know, this localism from spot to spot. Um, the big name spots like Pipeline, Waimea, those are just open to the public. So everyone just goes out there. There's no, there's still a bit of respect for pipeline and, and and those spots of like, the right guys get, the a little bit of advantage, but pretty much everyone out there's a the right guy because they're all they're all the big names, so it's kind of a, a free for all. So I think the uh, localism comes to like those secret spots that you grew up surfing as a kid, and then you want to cherish, and then you you also don't want some cameraman coming out there shooting your 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 secret spot, because then then they're gonna expose it. and There's gonna be a magazine cover, and then you're gonna have. Instead of those three kids coming out, you're going to have 50 kids, and then you're going to be defending your spot. So I think um, localism is not letting other guys kind of surf your spot or tell people about it and then not shooting it. You don't like Mm cameramen not shooting it. So, I mean, I have footage of all these spots I grew up, of all my friends surfing there, but I would never give it to anybody because it was like our secret spot, even though it didn't work because they're packed with people now. But, you know, 40 years later, back then I was hoping to keep it secret, but it didn't work, you know, it's –
0: yeah, because surfing definitely feels like one of those sports where you can't just <coughs> drop into it and uh, go. You have to like kind of ingrain yourself in the local community, wherever that is, not just Hawaii, but like, um, you know, that it's it's it is a community of people. You all have to share, you know, yeah. so it's not like, oh, I'm just going to go over there and uh, do my own thing.
1: But it kind of kind of comes hand in hand, it's probably like snowboarding as well. Like surfing, you got to go, you know, you, you got to paddle out and it's one foot. you got to learn how to get through the little one-foot whitewash, and then you're bigger, and then it's two feet or six feet, and you're learning how to deal. And then then it's 10 or 15 feet, and then next year you're out there, and it's 70, 80 feet. You've worked your way up these levels, and along the way you're working your way up these levels, you've learned how to deal with the localism and the different people along the way. So it kind of all comes hand-to-hand. It's just like I think snowboarding, if you went to snowboarding up to a mountain and some guy just came up and you guys were about some half-pipe and some guys just dropped in front of you, you'd be like, what the hell? But – but yeah. um, if you're at some remote peak and in the middle of nowhere. You can just drop down anytime you want because there's no one around.
0: Yeah, well, it well, just to what you were saying about like having the right person go ahead of you. Like, um, I don't think on any mountain you you don't rec- you don't really recognize anyone unless they're you know absolutely sent or if it's uh what's his face the flying tomato um, <laughs> <laughs> uh with his hair coming out. You're like, oh, there he is. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's a little more remote. You know, you can just like go off by yourself and do your go to any mountain and and for the most part and uh, do your own thing. But um, okay, we got to get you guys going. So uh, the way that we'll uh, wrap this up is is next season, I'm going to come out with two different questions than these two. But uh, but we're going to stick with them because I don't have any other ones yet and consistency. Um, So the first one is, uh, if you were to, um, schedule a double feature with, uh, your, I guess this is a series, but your docu-series and another one, uh, what would that other film be?
2: It's gotta so be I a So we got two
0: separate films. No, <laughs> it can be anything.
2: Hmm. So it'd be a double feature with hundred foot wave. And then we pick the other one.
0: Yeah. Or um, two in man. this case.
2: Mm. and sure. it can
0: it can mirror it it can contrast it it can be you know
2: it mirror it i mean it's I, I,
0: it's your uh it's your double feature
1: ah like the edge was, of unknown is kind of like a mirror of it none if you seen that one i was gonna say I, I, was, not, no.
2: I was gonna say no country for old men okay cool you start with that right you start with that And it's like this weird, no sort of soundtrack, right? It's just like this weird thing. By the time the movie's over, you just have this very eerie vibe about your being. And then you just go into like a nightmare situation of six episodes of Crazy Waves trying to kill you.
0: (laughs) That's a great answer.
2: so it's like humanity is coming after you in the first one. You know, there's this darkness that exists within us, people on the land in the world. There's no water in that film, like whatsoever, right?
0: Um, <laughs> no. I and think
2: so. <laughs> yeah, it's like all out, like West Texas and stuff, and maybe something at the border. I don't remember, but uh, and then immediately to now, you're in the ocean where nature's trying to murder you. So it's like you're just not safe anywhere. Yeah, that's I think a, that's a be, great answer. That'd be my go-to. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I
1: like it.
0: My, Where are you uh,
1: located at now? Are you in California?
0: Me? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Uh,
1: um,
0: yeah, my uh, my favorite answer, uh, not my favorite answer, but the one that got me asking this a lot was Jeff Cronin with
2: mm-hmm. um, you know,
0: yeah. Fight Club and all that. Uh, he he was he, on here for um, being the Ricardos. Okay. And I asked him that question and he goes, uh, Alien versus Predator. <laughs> 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 i was like hell yeah <laughs> um
2: should have done like army of darkness and then hundred foot Wave. that'd be right perfect. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah just yeah uh, uh actually anyway
2: um <laughs> completely flipped it, yeah
0: i i i was about to be like i just got a set of playing cards from army of darkness Oh um, uh,
2: really huge fan huge
0: yeah it's fan. the it's the uh yeah uh so um I collect playing cards. It's so fucking nerdy. Uh, The second question uh, for these two questions is: uh, if there is a piece of advice, or maybe something you've read, or a resource that has uh, helped you out or stuck with you uh, over the years, that you'd like to share with people.
1: Piece of advice
0: advice is a weird one because it's like you don't have to give advice to something but just like maybe something that that uh, stuck with you over the years and so maybe like a mantra or something that you kind of repeat in your head often or, or um, something to that degree
2: well,
0: again I, say- I need to read i need to retool these questions but
2: <laughs> yeah, no no you're good i would say a piece of advice would be you should you should get american cinematographer oh yeah like if you're yeah, a couple you don't thousand have, of those, like, you know, if you're like 22 years old and you don't have like a stack of 450 American cinematographers sitting in your house somewhere, then you're making like a massive mistake. Um, it's, it's really because technology, especially nowadays, technology is changing so much, you know, you yeah. can learn how to film just from reading those magazines because you're, it's just insight to, there you go. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Nice I mean, even just get iPhone. it, even just get it digitally or something. I mean, it's like, that's, to me you know people always say oh you should get like you know there's all these out you know the five c's of cinematography and there's all these old things um you should really just be getting that magazine physically at your house and you can see what the best and the newest and brightest people are doing and how they're doing it and how they did it so I, i feel like that's probably a more reasonable route to go than to just let you know look for like some one little piece of advice from someone when you can You know, you can get this subscription that literally is just filled with advice. And then you learn how human people are. Like, you know, famous directors of photography will tell you how terrified they were. You know, like, we didn't think this was going to work. You know, like, this was you know, these are like, you know, it'd be like Janusz or It'd be a huge person. And they're just like, oh, I had no idea. It worked out, though. It was great. You know, a lot of happy accidents there.
0: Uh, Mike, what about you?
1: You mean for advice?
0: Or uh, just something that is kind of... um
1: I mean, I I guess that, I mean, for me, advice, I I mean, I would just give maybe a little advice is if you have any physical things, like I'm paralyzed from the waist down, that don't let that anything um, kind of hold you back. You know, I, 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 when I first got injured, I thought that I couldn't do this or do this kind of work before, but I, um, I can still do stuff. I got, you know, good guys like Josh and these people helping you, and you can um, still do great stuff, even if you get injured. So don't give up
0: yeah well especially now with the uh not now but you you can you know with the wheels you can still operate you can still yeah
1: yeah yeah. Remote control this and gimbals on there there's stuff you can do we have these underwater sea bobs that you can ride on and stuff so there's all there's always stuff that can be done
0: yeah well uh thanks so much guys for your time that was that was a really fun conversation and the uh the documentary is awesome
1: thank you very much appreciate it and then um yeah appreciate all your time
0: frame and reference is an owlbot production it's produced and edited by me kenny mcmillan and distributed by pro video coalition our theme song is written and performed by mark pelly and the F at R box logo was designed by nate truax of truax branding company you can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to provideocoalition.com or youtube.com slash owlbot respectively and as always thanks for
1: listening